And we'll be looking at the whole chapter there, 11 verses. Nehemiah is kind of right there in the middle of the Old Testament. As we look the next three or four Sundays um, at the subject of prayer and fasting. Any of you skipped breakfast this morning in such a hurry you didn't have time to eat breakfast? You can count, or you, you might could count that as fasting this morning since we're, we're, we're talking about praying and fasting. I, I had an apple. I was, uh, I was so proud of myself. I went to the refrigerator. I grabbed me an apple. That was going to be my breakfast. And I was I, you know, just uh, really you know, bragging on myself internally about how good I was doing and how I'm back in my routine of my diet. And then I got here this morning at Deacon's meeting, and Paul Harper had bought uh, so, uh, biscuits for everybody. And I, I didn't want to be rude. I didn't want to hurt Paul's feelings, so I went ahead and got me a sausage biscuit. So I'll do a sit-up later. I want to read the first four verses here right now, and then we will dive into what is Nehemiah's prayer and what is one of really the greatest prayers that has ever been prayed uh, in Scripture, in history. But I want to read these first four verses to kind of set the stage, and then I want to ask you a question. The words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah, now it happened in the month of Chislev. In the twentieth year, as I was in Susa, the capital, that Hananiah, one of my brothers, came with certain men from Judah. And I asked them concerning the Jews who escaped and who had survived the exile, and concerning Jerusalem. And they said to me, The remnant there in the province who had survived the exile is in great trouble and shame. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down, and its gates are destroyed by fire. As soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days, and I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. I want to ask you a question. Let's be interactive for just a minute here. I want you to think for just about 30 seconds or a minute. I want you to think about your life, and I want you to think about everything that you are responsible for Everybody that you're responsible to or every, every situation like that. Maybe you're retired and you think back to the height of your career and think about, think about it in that context. Everything you're responsible for and everybody you're responsible to. Take about 30 seconds to a minute and think about that for just, just for a second. Don't fall asleep while you're doing it now. I need a timer. Maybe some of you have more responsibility since you've retired than you did when you were working. All right, now think about what you've thought about. Everything that you're responsible for and everybody you're responsible to. Somebody give me a, uh, somebody tell me, some, uh, uh, give me a, something that you thought of there that you're responsible for or you're responsible to. Don't, don't be afraid. The whole power grid at the Aniston Army Depot, all right? Ever keep you awake at night? Never. <laughs> somebody else, something that you're responsible for or, or somebody you're responsible to or an organization you're responsible to. Children, yeah, as a parent. Anybody else? Yeah, responsible for the building the faith of your children. Now, how many of you would say that as you thought about that, 
you thought about all that you're responsible for and everybody or every organization that you're responsible to, how many of you would admit that that is an overwhelming thing to think about? Anybody, anybody that would admit that? It's an overwhelming thing to think. All right? Some of you in the height of your career were probably responsible for hundreds, maybe uh, thousands of people. Some of you were responsible, as Danny said, uh, responsible for keeping the power on at the Anniston Army Depot. Responsible there, responsible with children, responsible with raising a family, responsible with obligations at church, responsible with obligations in civic organizations, all those things that you have. Now I want you to think about this. I want you to think about all those things that you're responsible for and the people that you're responsible to in that situation. Now I want you to think about taking on something larger than that. I want you to think about taking on something as large as bearing the responsibility of a whole race or nation of people who are a thousand miles away, the distance between Piedmont and Washington, D.C. Think about everything that you thought of that you're responsible for, and now think about God laying the burden of your own, uh, a burden on your heart to be responsible for a whole race of people that you have never met and that are a thousand miles away from you. Could you handle it? Could you, could you even begin to think about taking it on? What would be the first thing you would think to do? Pray. And that's what Nehemiah does here. Nehemiah has a, um, an, uh, a great responsibility there in the kingdom. Um, the scriptures pick up in 455 B.C. And we're introduced to this man named Nehemiah. Nehemiah is a cupbearer to King Artaxerxes. Now, Nehemiah plays a very important role in the court of the king. He selects, he serves, and he tastes the king's table. Everything that goes to the king's table in order to make certain that no food or drink is poisoned. Now, this is very important to King Artaxerxes because his father, King Artaxerxes, was murdered by one of his own helpers, one of his own confidants, while he was asleep in bed. He was murdered by someone in his royal court who was very close to him. And so King Artaxerxes knows what happened to his father, and he is... In, in picking this person who's going to taste his food and taste his drink to make sure that it's not poison, he's looking for the most loyal, trustworthy, caring person that he can find. And, and he comes across this honest man, Nehemiah. Now, it's, Nehemiah is not only has this responsibility, but if you read about a cupbearer, He's more like in charge of all of the people who work for the king there in the royal court. And so it's possible Nehemiah was actually a confidant and an advisor to the king. Now, Nehemiah is a Jew, and he's living in captivity here in Persia. 5,000 Jews had left out Persia. They had been released to go back to Jerusalem and build and rebuild a temple under the direction of a priest, a prophet named Ezra, a priest. Now, Nehemiah is still there in Persia, and he, but he has great concern for Jerusalem and these people. He's, never, he's not been there, but he has great 
concern for them because they are his race of people. They are really his family. Now, why is Nehemiah important to us and why are we talking about him this morning? Nehemiah is important because Nehemiah was a layman. Nehemiah was a man who went to work every day. He wasn't called by God to be a priest like Ezra. He wasn't called by God to be a prophet like Malachi. He was a man who got up every day with a responsibility and went to bed every night having accomplished that responsibility knowing that he had to get up the next day. He was a working guy. And so he, he worked a regular job. Now he had this secular position before leading this group of Jews from, to Jerusalem in order to rebuild the city walls. But he had learned skills here in the king's court. He had accomplished things here in the king's court. He had become an administrator. He had learned the skills of politics in the king's court. And now because of that, God has laid a burden on him to go back and adequately rebuild the political system and the physical reconstruction of a set of walls that would surround Jerusalem. Now, any of you ever going to work every day and you wonder, why am I here? Why am I doing this? And you, you feel like maybe you're just spinning your wheels over and over and over. And, and Nehemiah may have had these same thoughts some days. I get up every morning. I go to the king. I, I taste his breakfast. I go back and taste his lunch. In the middle of that, I'm in, I'm in charge of all the king's people. And I'm doing all these things. And there were probably nights that he went to bed exhausted, wondering, what am I accomplishing here in doing this? I'm just trying, I'm, I have to watch my weight because I have to eat every meal that the king eats. But what he is not realizing in the midst of all that is God is preparing him where he is for something greater in the future. How many of you have ever had the opportunity to move from what you were doing into something better and you realize it was because of how diligent you were and how you worked on what you were doing at the time that allowed you to move into something greater? That's what's happening to Nehemiah. You ever heard the old expression, bloom where you're planted? Nehemiah had bloomed where he was planted and he now would have the opportunity to move to something greater. His brothers and companions come to see him, and Nehemiah questions them about Jerusalem's condition. They tell him this, people are in trouble, we're in disgrace, we're disorganized, we're defenseless, the walls are broken down, the gates are destroyed, the temple had been rebuilt by Ezra, but the people are afraid to go to the temple because they're defenseless, and people just come in and rob them and rob the temple. And these people in danger are Nehemiah's family, the Jewish people. So here's what he does. He begins an agonizing process of prayer that will change the course of history for all the Jewish people to follow him. Nehemiah's prayer gives us great examples of three things, and I want to look at those three things this morning. First of all, it gives us a great example of brokenness. Nehemiah has only one option here. And that option is to pray. He has only one option. He can't abandon his post. If he just gets this burden on his heart, and he takes off on a horse a thousand miles to go to Jerusalem, the king is going to see it as a, as, as a slap in the face to him, and the king is going to have him hunted down and, and executed for leaving his post. So Nehemiah begins to pray and ask God for a plan. Now, 
Have you ever been in a situation where it was so desperate that the only thing that you could do was to pray? I'll give you an example that happened yesterday afternoon in the island of Hawaii. How many of you saw the news last night about what happened in Hawaii? For 38 minutes, y'all need to watch the news. For 38 minutes yesterday afternoon in Hawaii, the missile defense system put out an alert on the island of Hawaii and said this, we are under nuclear missile attack, it is imminent, and this is not a warning, this is not a drill. 38 minutes. Now, I read accounts last night of people being out uh, taking their children and shoving their children in storm drains. People trying to find places to hide for 38 minutes until government officials on the island of Hawaii came on and said there's been a mistake. There's been a mistake. I read an account this morning of one woman who said this, I dropped to my knees, and I ask God for forgiveness of my sins, and I ask Him to protect me. Now, you think about that. You, the, you're on the island of Hawaii, out in the middle of the Pacific, and, and you think that the North Koreans have fired a missile at you. What else is there to do? Get your ukulele and pray. Nothing else. And for 38 minutes, that's the world they were living in right there. They, were, they thought they were facing imminent death and destruction of the island. All they knew to do was pray. Now, Nehemiah has learned to trust God. He had begun his time in Persia as a captive, and now he's been elevated to a trusted confidant of the king. In verse number 4, we see that he goes into an intense prayer. It is the type of prayer that in our context, it would be the type of prayer that we would pray if one of our children had been, had been sent out to war, or uh, if we had gotten a bad diagnosis from the doctor that included the word terminal, or the loss of our job and our income, it was an intense prayer that he begins to pray. The Scriptures tell us here that he actually went into a period of mourning. History tells us that he mourned for four months. And then it begins to, to describe that he began to fast and pray. He devoted himself to fasting and praying. Give me the slide that gives the description of fasting, please. Now this is what fasting is. It's there on your worship guide, but here it is. I want to I say this. This is what Nehemiah was doing. Fasting is the laying aside of food for a period of time when the believer is seeking to know God in a deeper experience. It is to be done as an act of one's own pursuit of God. Fasting is to be done with the object of seeking to know God in a deeper experience. The early church, when it was making decisions about things, they would go into a time of fasting and praying. That's what Nehemiah has done here. He has broken from eating and he is spending that time praying. Now here's what fasting is not. Fasting is not giving up Facebook. Fasting is not giving up chocolate. Fasting is not giving up um, something like that, a, a daily habit. Fasting is the specific giving up of at least one meal to spend that time in earnest prayer with God, seeking to know Him in a deeper experience. Now, that's what Nehemiah is doing here as he begins to formulate his plan. And here's what's evident. 
Nehemiah already had a strong established prayer life. Paul gives us this advice in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 16 through 18, when he says this, Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Now, pray. Paul says pray without ceasing. Pray constantly. We talked Wednesday night about where are some of the places where you pray. Several people in, our con- in, in the attendance that night said they pray as they're driving. My only advice to them was keep your eyes open. But Paul said for us to pray constantly. That doesn't mean that we're able to pray for 24 hours at a time. That's impossible. But what Paul is meaning there is that we should live a lifestyle that is in such a way that at any moment when we need to pray, we can immediately go with confidence, and it is a normal part of our lives. There are times when we need to pray more earnestly, facing circumstances beyond our control, and the only place to go is God. Jesus gave us an example in Luke chapter 18 when he talked about the parable of the persistent widow. The persistent widow had to go to a man who was described as Jesus as an unjust judge. And Jesus described him this way. He said he neither feared God or respected man. But this persistent widow would go to him every day, sometimes multiple times a day, and she would ask him for justice in her situation and justice in what was going on in her life until the point of what did the unjust judge finally do? He gave her what she was asking for. Jesus says these words there in verse number 7. He says, And will not God give justice to His elect who cry to Him day and night? Will He delay long over them? Jesus says, Keep persisting, keep praying. Nehemiah took four months here and he persisted in praying and fasting and going before the God and asking Him to give him a plan. Now, prayer should be an everyday part of our life and there are these events where we seek God more earnestly. Paul said in Philippians 4, 6, don't be anxious for anything, but pray about what? Everything. Now, what do anything and everything mean? Anything means everything, and everything means anything. So what Paul is basically saying here is there's nothing that, is, that you shouldn't be concerned and pray about. I told our, our group on Wednesday night before, I used to have a girl in my youth group, and she had more pets than you could, uh, I, I mean, it was like a, a, a farm at her with the dogs and the cats and everything and the rabbits. And just about every Wednesday night, she had a sick animal. And just about every night, we would pray for Rufus or Barney or, or one of those. And one of the kids came to me and asked me, he said, why do we pray for her animals? It's silly. And I would tell them, if it's important to her, it's important to God. Leave her alone. Let her pray. God said for us to pray about everything. What she was doing was developing a prayer life. And if she was developing, praying over her animals, that's fine with me. All Nehemiah could do was pray. And this principle is applicable universally. Nehemiah prayed out of brokenness. And then let's look here at this great prayer, beginning in verse number 5. First of all, he acknowledges God's greatness. Look at verse number 5. He said, I said, O Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God. He's going into the presence of the sovereign creator and ruler of the universe. 
What else could he say to God except you are awesome and great and I am nothing compared and, and don't deserve to be standing in your sight. And then in the second part of that verse, he reminds God of his promises. He says, you keep covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments. He goes on, skip down to verse number 8, and he reminds him of what he told Moses. He says, remember the word that you commanded your servant Moses, saying, if you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples. But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though your outcasts are in the uttermost parts of the heaven, from there I will gather them and bring them to the place I have chosen to make my name dwell there. Here's what those two verses scream out to me. Not only does Nehemiah have a consistent prayer life, but Nehemiah, and this is key, Nehemiah knew God's word and Nehemiah knew to rely on God's promises. He's, say, he's saying to God, we're in this predicament here that we're in. We've been taken from our home in Jerusalem and we've been scattered all over the world because we were disobedient to you. But you also told us if we would come back in obedience, you would bring us back to Jerusalem and you would keep us there. How many times did God answer that specific promise throughout the Old Testament? Multiple, multiple times. God, uh, Nehemiah knew God's promises from his words. If you want to look at one of God's greatest promises, write down Romans 8, 28. And go this afternoon and study that, and then come back this night, I'm going to preach about it. Romans 8, 28. But Nehemiah goes further. In chapter, in verse number 6 and 7, Nehemiah confesses his sins, and then he confesses the sins of his people. In verse number 6, at that last point there, he says, I pray before you day and night for the people of Israel, your servants, confessing the sins of the people of Israel, which we have sinned against you, even I and my father's house of sin. We've acted corruptly against you and have not kept the commandments, the statutes, and the rules that you commanded your servant Moses. Nehemiah just doesn't go to God and say, I, Nehemiah goes to God and says, we, we have broken your commandments. We have broken your promises. We have sinned against you. My father's house has done it. This nation has done it. And I'm coming on behalf of my father's house. And I'm coming on behalf of my nation. And I'm praying and confessing our sins and asking you to forgive us. Have you ever prayed a prayer such as that? Have you ever bowed your knee before God and said, God, I don't want to just confess my sins, but this nation has sinned greatly against you, and I want to confess those sins, and I want to ask you to forgive this nation. If you haven't, you should. Because Nehemiah knows that God's promise is that if we would confess our sins, God would hear them. Then lastly, look at this. Nehemiah knows that he's completely dependent upon God. Where does Nehemiah eventually have to go? He eventually has to go and stand before the throne of the most powerful king in all the world, Artaxerxes. Now, here's what can happen according to what mood Artaxerxes is in. Artaxerxes can look at Nehemiah and give him up to half of his kingdom, if he so is in that mood, or Nehemiah 
or Artaxerxes can look at Nehemiah, and if he's in a bad mood, he can have him executed just for coming into his presence and asking a question. So what is Nehemiah going to do? Nehemiah's going to pray before he goes. And here's what he's going to do. He's going to become very specific in his request. Now, Nehemiah has lived with integrity. He's lived with honor. He's been faithful in this court. But the whole time that he's tasting this food and serving this wine and the whole time that he's organizing the king's court and doing all these things, there is a longing in his heart to go return to Jerusalem and be with his own race and people. His heart is aching. It's longing to be in this other place. And here's what he does. He actively prays and he waits for his time. God is going to open a door for him and he is praying for the wisdom to see that door open and to step into it. Now, Nehemiah was an excuse from his job. He couldn't just stay home and be sad and be all upset about it. He still had to go to work every day. He still had to live every day. He still had to do what he was called to do by the king. He couldn't just sit down and give up. But here's the key to everything we've talked about this morning. Here is his final plea in his prayer. Give your servant what? Give your servant what? Success. Give your servant success today. He didn't say, God, let me go in there and try to catch the king in a good mood and, and kind of get part of what I'm wanting and I'll wait for the other part of it later on, maybe a year or two down the road. He didn't say, God, hey, let me go in there and let me find Artaxerxes in a good mood and, and, and maybe just, just don't let him kill me. No, Nehemiah said, I want complete success today. Does that sound selfish? If we were to pray, if we were to get up tomorrow morning and we were to pray and say, God, give me success today. How many of you would feel guilty or selfish for praying that prayer? I used to would have. I used to would have until I studied this out. I would have felt selfish. I, when I first became a Christian, I wouldn't pray for myself. I felt guilty to even pray for myself because God had spared me from such wrath I didn't think I deserved anything else. I didn't pray for myself. I soon learned that I needed to pray for myself more than I needed to pray for anybody. But Nehemiah goes before God and he says, give me success today and it wasn't selfish. Because God didn't call any one of you to be mediocre or average in what He's called you to do. God does everything that He does in excellence and He does it in great determined detail. And Nehemiah wants to go into the king's court and he wants to lay out an excellent plan in great detail. And he says, God, I have spent these four months mourning and weeping and agonizing and I don't want to go into this court after being in your presence all this time and after speaking with you and talking with you and listening to you. Lord, I don't think you're calling me to go in there and get half of what I'm asking for I believe that you're sending me in there to be successful today. And here's the lesson from that is for us is to be specific in your request. 
Don't go to God in generalities. Don't go to God and beat around the bush. God knows exactly what you stand in need of. God knows your health. God knows your finances. God knows your marriage. God knows your relationships. God knows every sing, single thing about you. He already knows. So why would you pray some general prayer? Dear Lord, bless me. Go to God as Nehemiah did and say specifically, God, we are struggling here in our home in the area of finances. Maybe we got ourselves into this situation, but Lord, show us a plan. Teach us through your scripture about being faithful and tithing and show us how we move in your way out of this. Lord, our marriage is, is falling apart. God, you have all kind of principles and, and words in your scripture Show us through here how to pull our marriage back together. Lord, I have a gift. I have an ability. And I'm sitting on a pew every, every Sunday. And I'm sitting there waiting on somebody to come and ask me. Give me the boldness to say, here I am. I'm willing to serve. I'm willing to teach. I'm willing to do this. Be specific in how you talk to God. Don't generalize it. God is a God of great detail and He wants you to be specific in your prayers. Now, here's where I want to get to this morning. I want us to pray three specific prayers for this church. And here is my heart. When I was in Nicaragua back in July, God laid a burden on my heart because of the example that I saw from the church that was there a church that we had given up on, but they began to pray. They began to go to the church from 10 o'clock to 2 o'clock in the morning and pray specifically for things to change. They grew as a result of that as a church of, of one church, church to a church of three churches. And I was amazed by that, and it, got, it became a burden on my heart to come back and to establish specific things that we pray for as a church and to call upon us as a body of believers, to fast and pray for those things. Now, this morning I want to share those with you from my heart. And I'm going to tell you, I have asked our church team, and I'm, I, and I'm asking you to, to begin to pray about these things this afternoon. I'm going to put them on the email prayer ministry list so that you'll have them. You can print them off and pray for them and look at them every day. Or you can write them down right now. But I'm asking our ministry team to begin to pray about them this afternoon. I'm asking you to begin to pray about them. I'm asking our ministry team to pull away Tuesday and to fast from 6 o'clock in the morning to 6 o'clock in the evening, from basically from sunup to sundown, and to pray over these three things specifically. Now, many of you may have health issues that preclude you from being able to fast. You may be a diabetic. You may have a heart condition. Whatever, I understand that, and God will honor your prayers just as much. But if you're physically able to fast, I'm asking you to give up at least one meal this Tuesday and pray over these three things. This is the direction that I believe God has led me to lead our church into, and I want to share these with you this morning. If you, I want us to be specific in praying for these three things. Go ahead. Number one, I want us to pray for Piedmont First Baptist Church to grow in becoming a house of prayer. What did Jesus say we were? Did he say we were a house of preaching? No, I'm not even a good preacher. Did he say for us to be a house of singing? No. He called us to be a house of prayer. 
Now, I want to tell you this. You are much better at prayer than most every church that I know. I have people call me and people write me. People send me emails and text messages and, and, and brag on you for how you pray for their situations. But I believe that God has a, has a call on us to become much deeper in our prayer life and much deeper in how we pray and how we come together and pray. I'm asking you if you have time Tuesday as you're fasting and praying. And I know some of you are sitting there thinking, well, now, Jesus said you're supposed to fast and pray in private. All right, well, I can show you a lot of specific instances where the church, the church made a public call to fast, so leave me alone. All right? I got a degree. Now, I want us to grow in this area because if we grow in this area, if we grow in becoming a house of prayer, if we take where we are in our prayers now and we grow those, there's no, there is nothing that you can imagine that God can't do. Understand me? There is nothing that you can imagine that God can't do. But it begins with us praying and, and developing a consistent time of corporate prayer. While you're fasting, if you want to come here Tuesday, I encourage you to come here and pray in these altars or pray in the prayer room or go to a, your Sunday school classroom somewhere and pray. That's my first specific prayer for us. And then secondly, my second prayer is this. For Piedmont First Baptist Church to multiply disciples through sound biblical teaching and preaching. We talked about this in Sunday school this morning. This is the gap. This is what we're missing. People come in, and we, we just took the last 10 years and looked at it. And people come into Sunday school, and people come into church, and people go, and they become a Christian. And then we, we're looking around in a couple of years and wondering where they are. We, we're not discipling the way that we should. If we were discipling the way that we should, it would, it would be different. So pray, the second thing is to pray for us to multiply disciples through sound biblical teaching and preaching. And I can tell you that in, I can tell you, we're doing an okay job of, of sound biblical teaching in Sunday school and preaching. I, I pray, I pray before I get here that I don't preach anything that would be a doctrinal error that would lead anybody astray. But we have to do better because here's what is, if we're multiplying disciples, what are we doing? We're leading people to Christ. And I'm not talking about, I don't know how we get there. I want us to get to a point to where evangelism is just an everyday part of our lives, where it's not a scheduled event, but it's just an everyday outflow of our relationship with the Lord. One of our deacons this morning, and I'll share this with you, I, I, he may get on to me later, but our chairman of the deacons gave us a specific example this morning of him riding down the road and seeing a man sitting on a porch for a couple of months and seeing that man sitting there and the Holy Spirit began to speak to him and say, you're supposed to stop and talk to that man. And he did. He did. That is, that is what I want to come of the overflow of our heart from knowing God's scripture and knowing God's word and being consistent Bible uh, Bible teaching and Bible preaching, that's the outflow of it. And then third is this. For Piedmont First Baptist Church to have a missions focus that ties our city, nation, and world together. We will 
sometime later this year, go to another nation, and we will minister there, we will evangelize there, we will help a church grow stronger there, we will do those things there in a, in a, in a foreign nation in Central America. Really, we have the resources and we have the, the, the people with the gifts and abilities to do that here in our city. It is our obligation, I want you to hear me, it is our obligation as, the, as this church, as the largest church in our community with the most resources and the most ability, it is our obligation to lead the way in reaching this city for Christ. And if that means that we partner with other churches and we help them to learn and grow and how they do that, it's just as important for us to do that here with one of our smaller churches in Piedmont as it is for us to get on a plane and go to Nicaragua and do it. And I want you to have a heart that is available to help our other churches to grow. We began this, Ms. Donna began this last summer in bringing our churches together to do a vacation Bible school in a place away from the church. And we, we saw a little bit of fruit from that, but we need to grow and expand on that. I met with a group of people this past week about an opportunity in Montpelier, Vermont, to go and to partner with Matthew Nunnally, who is from Calhoun County, who grew up here, who has been a part of the Antioch Baptist Church, but to go to Mount Pillier, uh, New Hampshire, which is about an hour south of Can Canada, and this is what it is between Mount Pillier and Burlington, Vermont. Here's what I learned Wednesday. It is the least Christian area in the United States. And Matthew Nunley and his wife Kathy have been there for over a year now. And guess how many people they have attending their church? They have five. And here's what I want to tell you. They are thrilled about those five. Because they told us this. If we are not careful in how we share the gospel here, we will be blackballed in this community and they will run us out. That is the United States of America. So not only do we have opportunities there, but we have opportunities in Mentone, Alabama with Jess Jennings, who is building an advanced operations camp there for his Nehemiah teams, and he needs us to physically come and to help him build those um, buildings that he needs built. I want to tie all these things together, and I want us to have a missions focus that ties all those things together and here's what the end result I want to see maybe five years from down the road is those people that we've been ministering to in Nicaragua all those years, I would love to see them get on a plane in Managua and fly to Atlanta and drive to Piedmont and help us minister and reach our area from what they've learned. Wouldn't that be something new in missions? Now, this is my vision. This is what God has given me. And this is what I believe God has called me to share with you. I am basically saying this morning, this is, I'm putting my ministry on the line to say that these are the things that, that God has told me that we need to accomplish here at Piedmont First Baptist. Here's where it has to begin. I alone am nothing. I alone am, am absolutely. God has humbled me so much from the time our plane hit the ground on July 29th, up until this morning, I realized the nothingness that I am. But together, us praying and together, us growing and together, us doing these things together, 
Nehemiah prayed a prayer that would change the course of Jewish history. It changed the course of Jerusalem. And because Nehemiah went back, and because Nehemiah built those walls and the temple was secure, Jesus Christ was able to be born in Bethlehem, and he was able to go to a cross in Jerusalem for your sins. That's how important Nehemiah's prayer was. I want you to cry out this morning and ask God how you can be a part. Micah, come and lead us during this invitation. I'm not going to say anything further. I'm just going to ask you to come and pray.